protein engineer. Challenge CRISPR. The minimal gene set sufficient to encode a, a replicating cell. The first de novo designed protein. DIY bio. What is the molecular basis of life, essentially? What is synthetic biology? What is synthetic biology? Hello, and welcome to the Gene Mods podcast. This is episode 11, Build a Cell Workshop, sponsored by the Northwestern Center for Synthetic Biology. Wow, it's already been 11 episodes. Here at the Gene Mods podcast, we bring you interviews and news about the exciting field of synthetic biology. It is February the 7th, 2019. I'm Jordan Harrison. And I'm Isaac Larkin. And we are so excited to be here with Dr. Neha Kamat to discuss her work on artificial cells. Dr. Kamat, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Um, now, before we dive into the nitty-gritty, at the start of every show, we have to explain for our listeners, what is synthetic biology? Isaac, can you take a crack at it this time? Well, synthetic biology has a bunch of different definitions, but I think in honor of having Neha here, I'm going to say that uh, sort of following Richard Feynman, synthetic biology is building life in order to understand it. So one more thing before we start. A quick shout out to Tim Dobbs, a podcast listener who gave us some great uh, editing advice, and also to Russell, our sound engineer, as uh, this time we are recording in a studio for the first time. So uh, so now I guess we'll get started with the interview. So first question um, for Dr. Kamat, can you tell us a little bit uh, about your science background? Sure. Yeah. So um, I've been a bioengineer for my whole life. Uh, my Well, not my whole life, but the latest part of my life. Um, I was a Rice graduate, and I studied bioengineering as an undergrad. And then I went up to UPenn, um, where I did my PhD in bioengineering with Dan Hammer. Um, and that's where I got really interested in membranes. So Dan's lab, um, in collaboration with a great scientist named Dennis Disher and Frank Bates, had developed these... Um, vesicles made purely from polymers. And they showed that if you get the structure right, you can assemble a structure that looks kind of like lipid vesicles, but made from synthetic materials. And so that's where I sort of fell in love with membranes. Most of the work with membranes at that point was um, focused on drug delivery, so using membranes as a container. Mm -hmm. And I became really interested in thinking about what else could membranes do? Um, there was this growing, there was a growing field of synthetic biology at the time. There was this field of biomimicry that was kind of coming about mm, yes. as well. So how do we mimic cellular behaviors? And I thought the thing that was missing about membranes was uh, how they think and how they make decisions. And so I thought, I'm going to have to learn how to work with genetic polymers. So that's, that's what led me to my postdoc. I was looking for a synthetic biology lab to do that. And that brought me to Jack Shostak's lab at Harvard University, who was, you know, is, has been working in the synthetic biology space in a unique way. He's been trying to understand how cells evolved um, on a primitive Earth. Yeah, could you talk a little more about that? So your your interest is is in these membranes and these little these little bubbles, these vesicles, right? Yes. So why does life take place inside like a soap bubble? Yes, That's a, it's a great question. We basically just need a compartment um, for Darwinian evolution to work. And one of the reasons for that is if you can imagine a variety of, even on a primitive earth, genetic sequences, and one develops the ability to do something useful, like copy another genetic sequence. Well, if all these genetic sequences were in solution, the chances that that useful genetic polymer is next to another genetic sequence that does the same thing is very low. But in a compartment, your likelihood of being next to another genetic sequence that looks like you is much higher. And so you can start to make and copy molecules that have the same activity. So it's a, it's a way to sort of preserve function when it emerges. 
Another thing that's great about compartments is they can sort of segregate parasitic sequences that might do nothing useful that would have sort of overpopulated a system and solution. Oh, interesting. So without a compartment that separates things out, these parasitic sequences can like take over and prevent the more useful things from... Exactly. Huh. So well, that's, that's just really a, interesting. It's just oh. a function of spatial segregation. Yeah. Could you talk a little more about um, like what Jack Shostak is trying to learn what uh, what what he's trying to do and what you did in the lab? Yeah, so well Jack is like a great biochemist and biologist and he started working with RNA quite a while ago um, and and he had done some great work showing that you could evolve RNA to perform specific functions like mm-hmm. copy other RNA strands. And so I think he then became really interested in this idea of the origins of life because there's this sort of emerging hypothesis that we're an RNA world. We talked to Julius Lux about this, yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's just this really useful polymer. It um, can not only store information, but it can copy um, and other strands if that's the function that you want, or it can chop things up. But I, I think the question that Jack started thinking about was, you know, understanding how life started is an important biological question mm-hmm. if we want to know how we work. Um, and if we want to know if life is something that could emerge or be possible on another planet, or are we just really special? And so in order to do that, we need to understand this transition from chemicals to biology. And what does that look like? And so that's the question he started. And, and he started by kind of trying to understand how you can replicate RNA non-enzymatically, how you can couple that to the confines of a vesicle, how you can sort of grow and divide a vesicle. Uh, in that lab, I was sort of trying to understand how membranes can actually enhance uh, an RNA replication process. Um, how does that work? Yeah, so most of the time when we encapsulate something, this is something we encounter in our lab now, the reactivity of it goes down because you just can't get everything that you need to inside the compartment. But there's a lot of uses to compartments, as we know. It you know, keeps unique sequences together, keeps parasites out. What I was trying to understand was if we sort of use a membrane as a scaffold to catalyze reactions, so maybe it it kind of brings different reactants from a 3D space down to a 2D space of the membrane, would that enhance reaction rates? Mm. Um, And so I was sort of studying that a bit in his lab. That's really fascinating. I'm I'm curious, where do you think uh, these compartments came from in, you know, the origins of life? You know, how, how how did... how did we go from the RNA world with RNA molecules to, that, to these compartments? Where do they come from? Yeah, great question. There's there's a variety of different kind of compartments that could exist. Gas bubbles that are sort of stabilized maybe by small amphiphilic molecules or metal type of particles or clay is even sort of thought to be a sort of primitive um, surface that could be used to catalyze life. Um, but fatty acids are a really popular Um, theory as well. These are single-chain amphiphilic molecules, sort of half of a phospholipid without the phosphate group. And these single-chain fatty acids, to a degree, have been found in some meteorites, um, short-chain ones. Um, There's been some prebiotically plausible synthetic routes to actually make slightly longer ones, um, around 10 carbons. And one really neat thing is if you can take single-chain fatty acids, shake them up in a buffer with some salt, and they'll form into bilayer vesicles. Um, they're not very stable compared to phospholipids, but they they will behave just like membranes. They'll grow and divide. So that, I think, would be my best bet, is that these single-chain fatty acids were sort of self-assembling, floating around, 
And then the useful chemistry that comes from nucleotides started to kind of come around and, and join that structure. So now, what does your lab work on now at Northwestern? So the structure that I'm super passionate about is membranes. And sort of philosophically, I think these structures are really neat because they define the boundaries of life, the mm-hmm. cell. Um, and they perform all these really useful um, activities. So they sense environmental molecules. They allow for transport. They can then engage different metabolic systems inside. And so we've just been really interested in taking the membrane, and we do two things with it. One is we use it sort of as a model system to understand biological processes that involve the membrane. Um, For example, we're um, just about to have a study come out where we've been looking at how membrane mechanical properties influence the process of membrane protein folding. And so we can kind of work with that process in a really controlled system and change the mechanical properties of the membrane in different ways and then, then start to think about what implications does this have for biological systems. The second thing we do is just use it as like a really neat scaffold to start building artificial cells or cell-like materials. It is the backbone kind of, I think, maybe the skeleton of a cell or uh, the structural exterior. And so we use that as our starting point. And we personally have been really focused on trying to understand how to use membrane proteins in membranes. So don't just use the membrane as a container to encapsulate metabolic systems, but how do we generate an active interface that has membrane proteins that can sense signals and then send those in. Could you talk a little more about the mechanical forces involved with membranes? So you're, this, this is literally like pushing and pulling at the molecular level? Yes. Um, and so this is a type of signal that we've been really interested in understanding how cells sense, which is force, um, and then also designing membrane-based systems that can sense force. Um, because it's a signal that's it's really ubiquitous in our body. And we tend to focus on chemical signals, but it would be nice if we could maybe sense a force that's indicative of a pathology, you know, high shear stress or increased pressure somewhere. And so we've been thinking about that and and membranes do this really neat thing where they sort of stretch and bend when you poke them. And as they do this, um, we have this other structure called mechanosensitive channel proteins or other mechanosensitive proteins that will respond to that stretching and bending locally. One way that we try to detect forces is to design optical dyes that might sit in the membrane and respond to the deformation of a membrane because that deformation leads to changes in polarity or um, changes in actually just spatial distance between lipids and and thinking about how to turn that into an optical signal. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing we do is use mechanically sensitive proteins to tell us that force has been felt. So these are like evolved proteins that organisms use to detect threat. Exactly. So there's there's a few of them we know about now. The protein that we're, we've been starting with is the mechanosensitive channel of large conductance, which is one of the first mechanosensitive channels found as an osmotic release valve in bacteria. And it's been really well characterized. So what that means is um, it, there's just a lot of known information about it. And it, we're starting from a good point to start exploring how it behaves when we change the membrane around it or using it as a tool. So you've talked a little bit about this sort of on a basic science level with Mm -hmm. um, the origin of life and encapsulating RNA and other genetic components inside membranes. But can you talk a little bit about how artificial cells can be paired with cell-free reactions in a synthetic biology sense? Yes. So one way is to use the artificial cell, and this is the main way I think about it as a compartment, Mm -hmm. um, to encapsulate some of the synthetic biology cell-free systems, for example, that that, um, have been developed to sense molecules or produce useful molecules. 
And using the artificial membrane, we can move those systems into new spaces um, that they may not otherwise have been able to go, the bloodstream or aquatic environments, something that prevents dilution or that preserves activity. The other way that I'm thinking about coupling these is to really start using the membrane in its design capacity as this initial logic gate that cells use. Um, so we've been designing uh, metabolic systems or you know, genetic polymers or riboswitches and transcription factors to respond to specific signals and then generate a useful product or output. But nature uses the membrane as sort of their initial um, sensor to sense heat or temperature or chemical and then selectively allow other molecules to move through the membrane to initiate different processes. And I'd love in the long term for us to think about how to really engage the membrane to expand the sensitivity of what we're able to, to detect or the speed. It's fascinating. And so I, I would imagine if you start to combine like a cell-free synthetic biology system mm-hmm. with little compartments might start to look like a synthetic cell. Could you talk a little bit about the Build-A-Cell project that you're yes, involved with? I would love to. So this, the Build-A-Cell project, the workshop is going on tomorrow or Friday, and uh, there's a NIST workshop following that, sort of with the similar similar kinds of ideas. The Build-A-Cell uh, workshop was um, sort of founded by a group of four people, um, Richard Murray at Caltech, Drew Endy at Stanford, um, John Glass at JCVI, and then Kate Adamala um, at Minnesota. And then they brought on board um, Lynn Rothschild and Vincent Noro, and they've kind of formed the steering committee. It's a U.S.-based initiative to build a cell, and that's a really complex process. I think the idea is whatever the structure looks like, it's probably going to involve you know, genome replication, um, compartmentalization, and it's not going to look like a cell, but it's going to have features of a cell. And it's this group has tried to bring top-down approaches, like taking apart a real cell with bottom-up approaches of building parts from scratch to, to try to make a cell. The goal is to really have it be an international collaborative effort because I think people re- realize this is a difficult task. It's going to require lots of contributions. And another interesting goal, I think, is to have sort of open source protocols. One of the things that we encounter in the membrane world is it's hard sometimes to replicate, you know, people's procedures in exactly the same way. Um, I think that happens all the time in cell-free work. And just creating a database of protocols that people can follow to get consistent results with one another. I love open source. (laughs) Anything that's open source is good. Open source, open access. Yes. Making science more available to everybody. Absolutely. And my understanding is that it's also uh, a project that is somewhat crowdsourced. Is that correct? Anyone can join. Um, And we're really working, I think, right now on figuring out how to have a sort of easily accessible system where people can contribute to a protocol or testing a protocol. But yes, crowdsourcing is a big part of it. So there have been efforts before to, like, make synthetic genomes, you know, like a Craig Venter Institute made the synthetic mm-hmm. bacterial genome. There's the there's the yeast 2.0 project. How does this go beyond those? Ah, that's an interesting question. So um, beyond just a genome, how does building a cell do more? Well, I think I think it's about figuring out not only where things break when we pull them apart, but where emergent behaviors sort of emerge when we start putting things together. And and that's that's a little bit different. I think I could foresee 
the Build a Cell, I guess, initiative is also taking into consideration different material science approaches to try to build structures in new ways um, to form the compartment, to get things inside of the compartment. Mm. There are questions related specifically to cytoskeletal dynamics and motility, probably, that, that will be examined. So these are all things that come from the genome, but that we can probably study in isolation as well. But then I think the bottom-up approach is also probably pretty useful. Like, what are the unexpected results when we start to put things together? Yeah, that makes sense. So your work is a little bit different than a lot of the labs at the Center for Synthetic Biology Mm -hmm. in that you work sort of at the intersection, like you were saying, of materials science and Mm -hmm. synthetic biology. So how are your methods a little bit different from some of the other labs that we have here? Yeah, so I I think the structure that we work with is is different, so it lends itself to a few different methods. Mm -hmm. Membranes have sort of their own set of techniques um, if you want to make them visually pretty for microscopy. Or mm-hmm. we do we use a lot of um, biophysical assays to characterize the properties of membranes. So how fluid are the membranes? Um, can we assess flip-flop of lipids? And membranes do these really lovely things. They sort of sort themselves into phase-segregated domains if they have certain compositions. So we, we complement a lot of our engineering work with just biophysical studies of properties of our membranes. We'll use microfluidic techniques to make them as well. And so that's just, that's kind of our our baseline sort of methods that we use. But then in terms of sort of bridging synthetic biology with materials, I think in our case, the material of choice is the bilayer, but I could see in the future materials like hydrogels mm. or polymers that can interface with an electronic system being used more to sort of couple synthetic biology outputs to sort of maybe an electronic output, or maybe we can actuate polymers. There's a really neat group at Johns Hopkins, um, Rebecca Shulman's group, where she's putting toehold, RNA toehold switches inside of hydrogels and showing that, you know, the activity of a toehold switch can actuate a polymer to move. Whoa. And so those are the, that's kind of where I see this space going as well is taking some of the neat um, systems that synthetic biology has made and moving them into non-natural environments. So then if you daydream with us for a moment, mm-hmm. imagine it's 10 years in the future yes. and everything that you and your lab have set out to accomplish have been achieved in that time, what does that world look like? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it's a hard one to answer because there's so many fun things that happen unexpectedly. But my main goal would be to map out some design rules. Um, we've done that with proteins a lot. And what I'd like to do is map out design rules about how membrane composition and membrane properties influence membrane protein activity for a wide variety of proteins. And I think that's fundamentally kind of a biological question, but it will allow us to use membranes and membrane proteins in new ways for sensing and actuating different genetic systems. And, and so that is just a major goal of mine. And towards that, I foresee this idea of a membrane logic gate that we really start to think about. How do we use that first interface to say yes or no to different signals or integrate a variety of signals, mechanical and chemical in nature, and turn that into a specific output? Awesome. Do you think we can get the first built-from-scratch cell in a decade? I bet so. I think... One of the tricky parts of this problem is how to get a genome into a synthetic membrane. Mm. And that's not trivial. I think this is a question we're kind of discussing at Build a Cell as well, is how to, how to jam that enormous thing or, <laughs> or make a membrane around it. Yeah. But that's a, I think that's a start. Um, but I do think, you know, as 
as methods in, in self-re work keep improving, I, I can see it happening along with our compartmentalization techniques, definitely. It's an exciting future to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, is there anything else that we haven't really touched on that you think is really exciting that you'd like to talk a little bit more about? Hmm. I guess I would, I would have to put a plug in for membrane domains. Mm. This is like a really interesting structure um, that, so membranes will form, they will sort lipids based on curvature or the saturation level of their their fatty acid tails. And I don't think, I, I'd like to see us do more with sort of this, the phase segregating behavior of membranes as a tool to respond to an environmental stress mm -hmm. or bring proteins together in a really neat way to initiate a cascade. This is sort of that connection between material properties and chemistry that I think membranes could do. So just to put that out there to the world. Let's think about that. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that different sort of lipids that are, that make up the membrane will sort and make sort of islands yes, within the, exactly. okay. So like the lipid islands. And it was uh, a controversial topic for a while in the cell biology community, because while we could make these domains form in synthetic vesicles, they hadn't been found yet in real cells. Um, lipid rafts would be the term mm -hmm. that you're probably more familiar with. But I think we've now there's been some identification that they exist and it just makes sense that they should. And so are there like particular membrane proteins that preferentially locate to like these rafts? Yes. And presumably like all of them have, you know, a preference for a certain environment around them. Oh, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. And then there's these really neat things that happen where if you stretch a cell, you can actually induce domain formation. So there's there's all these neat connections between you know, material properties of the, the, the vesicle and the sorting of different chemical components that um, play a role in how, you know, we respond to things. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Kamat, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Yeah, thank you guys both. This is a great podcast. I'm going to become a regular listener. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Gene Mods podcast. Again, we are sponsored by the Northwestern Center for Synthetic Biology. If you want to find links to any content that we discuss in the show, they are in the episode description on SoundCloud or whatever podcast app you might be using. Next time, we're going to have Adam Silverman back on the show to play our January news quiz. And if you'd like to see more SynBio content from us, you can follow us on Twitter if you use it um, at Gene Mods, G-E-N-E-M-O-D-S. And if you like the pod, please share it with a friend. And if you feel extra kind, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. And until next time, here's to the bioengineering revolution. <laughs>